You're listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicholas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guest today is Sam Taplin, an award-winning producer and director who works in a variety of genres from factual programmes to drama documentaries. He has credits with Channel 4, Channel 5, Netflix, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic and PBS, among others. And he's created films and programmes on a really wide range of topics, from space exploration to the secrets of Selfridges. We've invited him onto the podcast to talk to him particularly about the making of war documentaries. Sam's experience in this area has a lot to teach us about how historic wars are re-narrated for modern audiences and also how the documentary industry responds to trends in the visualisation of war and, I suppose, helps to shape it. So, Sam, it's fantastic to have you with us. Hello and welcome to the Visualising War podcast. Hello, it's great to join you. So we're going to get stuck into war documentaries specifically in a bit, but I wondered if you could first set the scene for our, for our listeners by giving everyone just a quick overview of historical documentary making more generally. The process presumably varies hugely from company to company, but if you could just walk us through, that would help us then understand better what you're doing with war documentaries specifically. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As with almost everything in life, it starts with money and money equals time. And so it's really boils down to how long do you have to do something? And someone like myself, I'm a freelancer, and that's basically how the vast majority of people in TV are employed. So a production company will come up with an idea internally through their own development team. This is how it usually happens, okay? This is about 90% of the way. They'll pitch it to a broadcaster. Most of them will disappear, and you'll never hear about them ever again, no matter how much effort you poured into them. And then occasionally a broadcaster will say, yeah, great, okay, like that, want that. At which point the production company starts looking for people like me. So they'll look for a, a producer director, something called an assistant producer who would be my right hand man or woman doing it. The team often only comprises of that. You may get a researcher. And then a lot of the time they're commissioned as series because there's an economy of scale. So broadcasters want to have fleet of shows. It's much better for them. And also the people making them want that because economies of scale, they can just basically cream off more of a margin if they make lots of episodes of one thing. So at that point, we'd come in and the production company, depending on two things, how much money they've got, or more to the point, how much of the money they've got they actually want to spend on making the program, then decide how long you've got to make it. Because as I say, the biggest expense in TV, really, until you start hiring kit is the people. So how long I am working on it is important to their bottom line. And I mean, to give you an idea, six weeks would be very generous. And, and in six weeks, that would be arriving knowing nothing, because you don't, because the show's some show that's been commissioned from somewhere. And it might be a history show you have a little bit of grounding in. I'm a history graduate, so you may know bits and pieces, but certainly not enough to make a show. And you then have to learn about it very quickly, crash course yourself through it, usually then start producing a written piece of document fairly swiftly, maybe a week or two weeks in what's called a treatment, which would be a sort of two, three-page document, roughly saying what you think the story is, is. They then also want, after that, what's called a shooting script, which is that document, but the length of a script called Wish Sync. So it's like you write the script before the show exists. 
And while all of that's going on, the other thing you actually have to do is actually find the real people that are going to... I mean, most history shows boil down to interviews, unless you've got a presenter. And I don't really work with presenters. I've been spared that joy. You know, you're looking for experts. So you're looking for, you know, I would say, so somewhere between six and 10 people who are going to contribute. So in the meantime, you're doing that as well. You're looking for them. Your AP will be hopefully helping you with that. Digging through universities, previous TV shows books, authors, and calling them, contacting them. And then there's a sort of a warm-up call where you call them and you basically work out, are they boring or not? And also, are they at the right level? I mean, the trouble, the big thing for TV is it's got to be, are they going to tell you the story at the level that's the kind of, the level for people at home? Do they understand that this is not a piece of academia? Um, So that's all going on. That's a big task. And then the third factor is where and when. So you've got to also in that time work out what dates are these people free? Where are we going to film them? How long are we going to have? How much will it cost? How do we get from that person to that person to that person? Because the thing that you're moving towards is called the shoot block. And that's usually about two weeks. And you've got to get it all done in two weeks. Because you're paying for kit, you're paying for crew. Those days are expensive and you're jamming everything into those two weeks. And then after that, that spits you out, usually exhausted, and you go straight into the edits. You go into an edit suite with an editor you get transcriptions through of all the interviews um, and you've got to sift through all of those, start to pick out what you think are the best bits that people say. And so you end up in the edit having actually a really, really good summary, accurate summary of what went on because you've got all these great experts telling yeah. you what happened. So your accuracy massively improves. There is fact checking. Um, and with National Geographic Channel, there's a very, very rigorous fact checking. They've got something called standards and practice and you have to have three academic sources backing up every single fact. So there is fact checking, you know, dates and facts and things are checked. It's just, it's usually later in the process. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the level of input that the development team in the production company have at, at various points. So they come up with this idea yeah. and, and then they see if a broadcaster wants it and then they find you. Uh, do they give you a really detailed brief or is it very much sort of your baby to create within all the constraints of time, money, finding interviewees and so on, until the point at which they kind of come back in and see if they like your rough cut? No, I think you've really zeroed in on probably one of the biggest problems that someone like me faces. The development team's job is to get work, to get a commission. Their job is not to make it good for you when you arrive and actually have to make the thing. It's now somebody else's problem to work out how we actually do this. I mean, you know, development is rarely very detailed. I think the thing that they do get involved in maybe from the beginning and stay with you is what's called format. So a lot of the time TV is everybody's done everything a thousand times. So it's all about the repackaging. Can we find a new interesting way to tell the same thing again? And I mean, the Second World War is a great example of that. I mean, there will always be an appetite for Second World War, but people like to try and pretend that they're finding a slightly different way of telling it each time. And that's where you may well get the higher powers that be on the development team at the production company keeping an eye on you because they know what they've told the channel they'll deliver and they need to make sure that you will do that. It's usually more stylistic. So they have some really high level asks, but they leave you with challenge and maybe sometimes opportunity for creativity and for you to shape things according to your research and perhaps even sometimes your interests. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The detail is probably, yeah, it's almost certainly down to someone like me. And that's partly the skill is I've got to know what's interesting. So, yeah, those bits of detail are down to me. You said be very creative. Usually big thoughts like 
what's it going to look like? What's the style? So is it going to be talking head interviews or are we going to be going around following a guy investigating it? Or is it going to be graphic? Those kind of big building blocks will usually have been built into the treatment for the commissioning stage because that's kind of what the channel have bought. So you will have some key pillars of structure definitely in there. So Sam, you mentioned World War II and that is my cue to ask a bit more about what kinds of war documentaries specifically you've been doing so far. I think it's only World War II. I've just done a huge amount of World War II. Probably one of the less tasteful things I say is Hitler's paid my mortgage because I have made so many shows about World War II and the appetite for them is endless. A huge variety of areas within World War II. Can you give us some examples of the various aspects of World War II that you've worked on? Because as you were saying, a lot of these things, you think there's already something out there on World War II and there's something else out there on World War II. And it's the challenge is to find new ways, new aspects. So how did you go about that? World War II, I imagine, is really, really challenging because, you know, as you said, people are really interested in it. Yeah, I mean, and it's a minefield. The people who really know about it are always disappointed by World War II documentaries because it's always missed something that they know. Our job is to cater to the people who don't know that much about it. Most of the time, that's the vast majority of, of the audience. So, for instance, the thing that I'm doing at the moment called Road to Victory in Colour, which the previous series we made for Netflix is called Greatest Events of World War II in Colour. I would say that's a pretty standard World War II take, for instance, an event, the Battle of Midway, and tell it pretty straight, as in there isn't any particular massive angle, except we're colourising it completely. So it all gets sent off to... A company in France and they have a whole team in India and they go frame by frame by frame and they colorize the black and white footage with real real accuracy they research it all what colors hat would that guy hat be and so that's the gimmick that makes the show exist so the storytelling is actually quite a pleasure because you don't have to do format backflips you can say the colorization is giving it that big tick of originality so let's just tell the straight story With other things, I did a thing called Nazi Secret Files, and that was all like finding unknown, quirky, can't believe that's actually true, but is true stuff that the Nazis got up to. That was like a six-part series, and I got an episode on drugs, which at the time was fairly new. It's very well known now that there was this massive use of this methamphetamine called pervitine by the German soldiers. And it was all like finding hidden files in German archives that showed the massive use of these drugs. And then another of the episodes was about how they were trying to show the origins of the Aryan race and try and put some real kind of academic, what they called rigor behind this kind of complete pseudoscience rubbish that they believed in. That was the angle. And there were all these different episodes that were about something a bit quirky and unknown. Then there's, I did one called Hitler, The Rise and Fall. And that was all sort of telling Hitler's story from, you know, being a, a penniless artist to obviously dying in a bunker. And that was all tried to do through sort of anecdotal stories and quite an intimate portrayal of, of him uh, and seeing the war through those eyes. Those are the sort of angles that they would find. I saw some of the episodes of uh, World War II in, uh, in Colour and I have to say it was striking. I mean, this, it's, it's a, maybe it's a small difference. Yes, you're, you're putting colour to, to these also well-known figures, well-known scenes, but it makes a huge difference seeing it in color because it takes away a bit of the distance that you normally have yeah. with the black and white. And uh, it kind of brings this, this point home to you that it makes it seem more real in a way. Do, can I just ask, do you know how they find out about these colors? Do they do a lot of reading and this, are there descriptions about these things? Or Because I was always wondering, how do you know what this 
what the hats would have looked like on that particular soldier officer. Yeah. Well, I mean, at first I totally agree with you. It's amazing. They suddenly feel like real people. They suddenly feel like you and I. Uh, black and white creates this distance. You think it's like a different age, but actually they just really look like ordinary people and that's really impactful. I can't claim to take credit for the colorization, so I don't absolutely know. Okay, so there are first things. So firstly, they've got grayscale. So within reason, they can kind of attribute a color to grayscale. So they kind of know what range a color would be within the grayscale. Then after that, yeah, they really do research. So say it was a shot of a French soldier. There are people who've studied this, who documented this or documented it at the time. And they'll find out what tone their hats were in that regiment. So then they'll paint it in literally that way. And I'm sure they do get it wrong. I'm sure it can't be all 100% correct. But I know they go to great efforts to, to make it correct. One of our interview guests are the editors of Ancient Warfare magazine, and they have to deal with very similar problems. When the question is, how do you represent something where you have incomplete information? And uh, that's just something I guess we have to accept. And it doesn't take away from the message that comes through. That's sometimes more important or bigger than every little detail. So I think that's probably quite common when you're looking at this sort of reconstruction. Yeah, I would say that that's a microcosm of exactly the difference between academia and TV is that we're looking for the essence of something. We're looking to convey a mood and to entertain. Of course, you want it to be accurate. You don't want it to be wrong. But your sole goal is not to nail absolutely every little detail. We're not applying those standards to ourselves because that's not what we're there to do. And so I would say, yeah, with the colorization, exactly like you say, it may be wrong here and there. There's proper effort into it being correct. But the essential effect is important. And that's that really makes it so much more real mm -hmm. and present. Can I ask a bit more about greatest events of World War II in colour? So yeah. you've said that the originality of this and the freshness of it is seeing it all in colour. So there are 10 50-minute episodes and they yeah. do really focus on the greatest events, the Battle of Britain, Pearl Harbour, D-Day, Hiroshima and so on. And obviously they sort of take a bit of a chronological narrative through World War II. I was wondering who decides which great events to focus on, which count as great and why? Is this just sort of received wisdom about which of the great events of course wisdom that's then kind of being perpetuated by this series of 10 episodes what's the decision making behind that greatest is quite an unfortunate word actually when you actually look at the series because there's the liberation of Buchenwald which obviously the liberation was a great moment but the basic story to that is horrendous same with Dresden so I would say firstly this is a great example of something that went on long before I joined the project this is a development moment I think the thinking would be We want a mix of types of event. So we don't just want battles. We want, you know, something that touches on the Holocaust, something that touches on the aerial war, on bombing. We need something from the Pacific theater. We need something from the Eastern Front. So really it's a sort of just, a, it's a sort of, it's a smorgasbord. It's, each one is meant to be a taster of, of World War II. And then of course there are the ones that are obvious, you know, D-Day, you're going to do that. We would say Battle of Britain, you're going to do that. Maybe worldwide that wouldn't be seen as one of the great events of World War II. So there's sort of the low-hanging fruit, and then there's the ones that are going to give it a, a full mix. I mean, one of the big complaints people make about that series is the Eastern Front has got um, Stalingrad, and that's it. You know, and there's a massive Western skew in the TV that we make about World War II, because really World War II, you could argue, was won on the Eastern Front. Really, that's where most of the dying happened, most of the fighting happened, and yet they pretty much get Stalingrad, and that's about it. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point there. One of our other podcast guests was an artist, Diana Forster, who's mm -hmm. focused all of her artwork on 
representing the journey that her mother took as a Polish refugee who was became a forced migrant, forced out by the Soviets into labour camps, and then had this sort of two-year experience of imprisonment, forced labour, and so on. And it's a side, as you say, of World War II that we very rarely hear. So it's interesting to hear you reflecting on that in the, you know, the 10-part series, one only one part of which focuses on that side of the war. Yeah, and it's grossly unfair. It's, they're just not famous. I mean, the series that I'm doing is essentially a follow-up to Greatest Events. Uh, and in that, then we had to find a range of 10 episodes that weren't in the first one. So, and, you know, Kursk gets into that. So Kursk is this huge tank battle that happens after Stalingrad. But again, it's only really one episode in 10. I'd love to follow up on that a bit more, actually. So this second series is The Road to Victory. And in the title, again, like Greatest Events, there's a narrative in itself that we're going to be plotting through the events that not just led to, but actually kind of contributed to. And I find it really interesting that so the, the freshness of this series is that it's in colour. Now, when you look at, for example, um, coloration of World War One footage in the film by Peter Jackson, They Shall Not Grow Old. One of the things that I think I found striking and interesting about that was that you didn't see any great events at all, that it is really ordinary people, ordinary soldiers, just sort of drinking tea and sitting around. That's, you know, doesn't represent it in its entirety, of course. But I think that's the bit that sort of resonated with me. And arguably the kind of coloration might make you more inclined to look at the ordinary people, if you can, and the everyday events, the ongoing day-to-day experience of World War II. But the, the Netflix series has clearly decided still to focus on these sort of pivotal moments and narrate the war through pivotal moments. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that it's fantastic. Firstly, it's not commissioned by an American broadcaster. We have a very different taste. Imperial War Museum were involved directly in that footage and gave him permission to have access to that footage. It was a much longer form piece. There was no narration as far as I know at all. There was just interviews, right? Which is really interesting. They're just using bits of of what we call sync, bits of soldiers talking underneath. That leads to a much more intimate type of show in itself because people tend to be talking about their own personal experiences. Of, like you say, the personal stories come to life that way. They're eyewitnesses. It, you just need a lot more time. It's a lot slower paced. And you need an audience who are going to go for that. That's not what Netflix or American channels And maybe they're wrong about that. So there is a big thing that, you know, there became a real problem with American TV, with cable TV, that they kept on sort of trying to cater to the lowest common denominator. And they'd have this crazy situation that they they used to set up vans in Vegas. National Geographic Channel would invite a van in Vegas and invite people in and test screen their shows with these people who are, you know, on a weekend in Vegas, you know, American couples, and they'd give them some big dial and they'd just turn it bored excited bored excited and so they started analyzing all those shows through that lens and once you go that way once you sort of almost let the viewer drive everything you do you start disappearing down the rabbit hole and you just lose you lose all quality control altogether what's great about the peter jackson thing is that it's not doing that it's just much more sophisticated it's got much more confident in what it's doing and i think people are realizing now these broadcasters like netflix oh hang on everybody likes good stuff You know, it's almost like they thought that the viewer wasn't capable of enjoying something that's really classy and brilliant like that. And they were wrong about that. And I'm hoping that TV is moving back towards what Peter Jackson is doing. And what Peter Jackson will have had is time and money and the resources to dig into oral archives and find amazing old interviews and and stitch them together. And there won't have been someone knocking a door going, 
you've got three weeks. That's why someone like Peter Jackson is able to make something so brilliant and beautiful. He uses his name to have the kudos, the money and the confidence to, to make something like that. And unfortunately, kind of things that we're making like great events in World War II, we're just not operating in that world. It's a bit more, I hate to say it, sort of cookie cutter. It's a business. Uh, representing World War I and World War II, whether in part, it's also the kind of warfare that we're looking at that sort of predetermines to a certain extent what we show and what we're interested in. Because obviously the, the First World War was very static, at least on the Western Front, where you probably get a lot more footage of this sort of, you know, how do the normal soldiers make a life in the trenches and how do they organize their lives there? I, I would imagine if you um, were actually looking at, the, at World War I at the Eastern Front, which was a lot more dynamic than the Western Front, maybe you would get a different kind of sort of documentary out of this. So I, I guess that's my question that I'm quite interested in is to what extent do you think, is it the material also, the stuff that you find, what you have, at your disposition that then sort of um, predetermines to an extent what kind of documentary you can make. I mean, absolutely. I think you're right. It's just the World War II is much more dynamic in some ways, fluid, and, and World War I wasn't. The politics, the machinations, different allies joining and leaving, you know, it was the World War II is just jam-packed. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing, World War II. It's this amazing confluence between individual bravery or dastardliness and this kind of technology starting to come through in a way where it still involved human skill, but it was machine blending with man. And it was this sort of amazing kind of period of time. World War One, yeah, was kind of this sort of slightly more grim. They dug a row of trenches and sat there and kind of slogged it out for, for years. So there's definitely something in that. But I do think also with Peter Jackson, you know, yeah, he was just able to make something much more intimate because mm. he was given the time and space to do that. Have you ever been in a situation where you had an idea for a narrative that came out of your initial sort of research, but then you couldn't port this with additional material just because the material wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I don't know if this happens in your world, but I, I always start out with a thesis. I always think I sort of roughly know where I'm going with it. And I think you can get too wedded to that. I mean, it's particularly dangerous in TV because you often have invested a lot of time and effort in a very restricted schedule driving down one avenue. And it can be quite difficult to actually accept, OK, no, this isn't actually really holding together anymore. I need to sort of undo or throw away everything that I've done in the last three weeks, bearing in mind you've only got another three weeks. You know, six weeks would be generous, it's often three or four. So... That is a danger with TV, that you don't have enough time to know about it. You may be given something by a development team where they have looked like they know about it and, and the story kind of looks exciting and great. So you go, great, that's the story. And then you only discover really quite late on that it's not absolutely hanging together. Sometimes you discover during the interviews you're doing with people while you're recording or even worse, in the edit. Hang on, I've really had the time to now dig into this. I'm trying to write a what we call a com line, a bit of narration to link up two interviewees. And I'm going, oh, what actually did happen there to make sure these two bits connect? And then you start looking, you go, oh, I'm not finding this thing that we've built this bit around. I can't find any evidence for that anywhere. And then you suddenly have to sort of start knocking it down. Fortunately, the truth is more interesting than the make-believe version. But that is a difficult moment that happens all the time. And it's one of the biggest problems. And you just simply don't have time to interrogate everything. It's very hard to sometimes let go of things that were really exciting. Academics, when I interview them and so on, I think that's why I think it can be quite frustrating for people on your side of it, because 
you're dealing with someone like me who's basically got quite a lot of power in some ways to present a story that you know a lot about and have dedicated your life to knowing a lot about. And this other person's parachuting in, having done a week's reading, and they're going to suddenly handle this thing that you know inside out and present it. And are they going to do it well, accurately? And I often feel that tension. I very rarely contact academics after I've made a show to say, do they like it? Because I usually know the answer would be no. They don't. <laughs> so I don't even go there. Well, on the other hand, for us academics, it's also good actually to think about different audiences and how we can narrate, tell, visualize, represent the things that we're working on. It's great detail. And we, once we have more time than six weeks and so on and so forth, uh, yeah. how can we present this to, to a broader audience? That's very important to us as well. So I, I would imagine a lot of academics would also welcome the opportunity. Even within academia, you know, you might be writing a book, you might be developing a thesis. There's still that tension between accuracy and storytelling and selection of material so you know for all that you might be able to go into much more detail and much more depth in a sort of 300 page book you're still missing stuff out you're still selecting very carefully yeah. and highlighting and there's still a narrative arc to mm -hmm. what you're doing that's why there are you know hundreds of different books about Churchill um, all of which take a different angle all of which are eminently footnoted but they're still telling their own story I wonder if we could dig a bit more into that into the sort of the narrative arc that you are yeah. sometimes trying to achieve with an episode yeah. you know I think you've mentioned audience wanting to keep audiences coming back keep audiences past the ad break for example mm. does that play a role in the sort of the narrative arc that you design for each episode or for the series yeah the American word that's just commonplace in tv is jeopardy You have to kind of establish a tension that's going to keep people watching. Fortunately, making something for Netflix is so wonderful because they don't have ad breaks. Destructive element of ad breaks to American cable TV, which I've made for a long time, is you have five ad breaks in one show. So you can imagine every sort of five to six minutes, people are leaving the show and you'd have to try and... And then the ad breaks last about as long as the piece of content they've just watched. And you've got to get them to then come back. You're chewing up time, basically, trying to make it hooky rather than actually telling people what the most interesting pieces of information are. You've usually got to pick your protagonist, your kind of person you're going to favour, and your antagonist. And you kind of need to sort of stick with that. There isn't room for a massive amount of nuance. And historiography certainly goes out the window, because you can't tell people there are four different versions of what's happening. You've kind of got to pick your version and go with it and be confident. I think what I learned a long time ago with it is you can never say anything that's not true, but you can not mention things. That is a gray area because if you're not mentioning something, are you sort of not telling the whole story? And therefore, is that not true? And that is something that we wrestle with. But the fact is, again, it comes back to time. And, you know, a TV show, a long one, if you're lucky, is 50 minutes, it's usually much less than that. And once you've set up what the show is about and had interviewees talking, you can only really tell a very skeletal story. So you've got to make that a really clear story you can invest in. So Sam, just to give us a concrete example of that, could you just talk us through how you put together, for example, the episode on the Battle of Midway in the Greatest Events of World War II series and you know how you told as much of the story as you could without overcomplicating it and keeping it linear, keeping it engaging? Yeah, definitely. And Midway's a really good example. So essentially with Midway, and, and this is follows the arc, the classic arc that almost all stories follow, which is you have a hero, there's an inciting incident, they call it, something dramatic happens that changes their world. 
there's then the descent towards darkness. So everything just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then they turn it around at the last and say today. It's kind of like all superhero movies now follow this same format. There are sort of varieties within that, but you sort of always want to try and follow that because that's what makes people invest. So with Midway, the challenge I had was I had to make it sound like it was always getting worse for the Americans. Okay, the Americans are in trouble. Pearl Harbor has happened. They're all over the shop. The Japanese are running wild. They've taken loads of territory and they've got this powerful navy and the Americans are clinging on. And in the build-up towards the Battle of Midway, there was just this battle that just didn't fit. I kept on saying to my exec producer at the time, who's my senior, I just wish this bit didn't exist. But I knew I had to mention it. It was called the Battle of the Coral Sea. And it's a sort of aircraft carrier battle, a bit like the Battle of Midway, but it happens a few months earlier and it's a bit smaller and it's not as famous. Essentially, in that battle, the Americans kind of know where the Japanese are going to be and they go there to confront the Japanese and have this fight. But in our narrative, that, didn't, that doesn't really work because the Americans are meant to be on the ropes and kind of clinging on for dear life. So we had to find a way to package Coral Sea, keep it in what was really interesting, the first ever aircraft carrier battle. So this is the first time two fleets have fought without ever having visual contact with each other. They never see each other. The planes just fly over. So we kind of package it through that way. And the other way we came up with is we kind of went, okay, the Japanese want to take out the Americans. And after the Battle of the Coral Sea, they sink three American ships and they only lose two themselves. So the Japanese are even more up than they were. If you're a historian who really knows about this, you don't come away going, oh no, Coral Sea was the Japanese just building their master plan. You know, this was actually a bit of a ding dong and both sides lost out. But it just didn't drive the narrative correctly. So you had to slant it slightly so that you still invested when you get to Midway. So that's one of the examples of how we kind of had to find a way that drives your narrative with the facts. Is there ever an opportunity to bring in a bit of the scholarly controversy to uh, present different ways of looking at the same event? I would say the films that do that where the plot is less heavy. So one of the reasons that I found Dresden really interesting to make is because it's not a massively complex story. With Midway, the ins and outs of how Midway comes about and all of it, you know, you've got plot to get through. You've got a lot to explain. With Dresden, the through line to get to the attack on Dresden is terrible and sad, but much clearer. So suddenly you've got this space in which to start to open up the moral dilemma. And with World War II shows particularly, it's pretty hard to have nuance when dealing with the Nazis. It's pretty hard to have two sides of that story. They don't lend themselves to empathetic stuff. But at the same time, not every German was a Nazi. You know, a lot of German people were just ordinary civilians who were swept up in this massive machine that was Nazism. So I felt very much like there was room here for us to get away from the good guys versus bad guys story and look at the gray areas of war. Just because we were on the side of the good, as in we, we effectively weren't the Nazis, does it mean everything we did was good? And I very much felt with Dresden that it was certainly debatable. And with something so clear like that, the bombing of Dresden, there is room for that moral debate. And we had German historians, British historians, and then we had people who were sitting in the middle kind of saying, yeah, you know, for one reason, you can understand why they did that. They were desperate. It was a terrible war. But it's an existential war. You've been driven to these extremes after five years of bloodshed. You know, and then there's other people going, yeah, but 
there was just absolutely no point whatsoever in flattening a, a civilian centre like Dresden. It has no possible impact on the outcome of the war. And so there was room there for a bit of debate because of the subject. With something like Midway, it's just much more like, as I say, plot, plot, plot heavy. It's a kind of like heroes and baddies, you know. Yeah, battle story. We're coming back to the idea then that the content sometimes drives the story you're able to tell. And I think that leads me on to another question, which is, are there aspects of war stories that are just unpalatable for the kind of documentary making that you do? Are there sort of really visceral bits? Are there, there sort of horrors of war that where there's a red line and you don't go there? Or is everything open to representation on the screen in your experience? I think people who are making the shows feel that everything's open to representation on the screen, definitely. I'm not going to lie to you. It doesn't make people want to keep watching if you're just going to show them stacks of, of dead bodies for 10 minutes. I mean, even with Dresden, yeah, I had to sit there and go, OK, have we had enough of seeing these dead bodies now? I can remember again my set producer going, OK, I think we've got the idea of this bit now. You need to move on. You know, you need to move on from the horror. There's a rhythm. It's a piece of entertainment. You're not just there to purely focus on the horror. But I think it has a massive place in, in war shows. I always want to show that. I think that war is horrible. I think it's just really reductive to make out it's just this purely heroic endeavour. But that said, there are personal tastes. And I have to say, with Netflix series we're doing at the moment, we had some really visceral footage to do with the build-up to the Battle of the Philippine Sea, where the Japanese natives on an island near Okinawa had been told that the Americans would rape all the women and kill all the children, been told this. And so before the Americans get there, there's this footage of Japanese mothers throwing their babies off a cliff. It's just absolutely horrifying footage. And it's real. From then, it's extraordinary. Netflix asked us to take it out. They said it's just too much. So we come to the question of the limits of representation, representability, which takes us to the question of the influence of the kind of audience you think you're making this for. And you were saying earlier that um, obviously today we have so many possibilities to measure and find out who is watching, how long they're watching, do they rewatch it, do they keep going with the series? So what kind of audience are you aiming this at? What kind of audience do you have in your head when you devise this? And how does that influence your choices? Yeah, well, I think that's what's so great about the Netflix data is the people we thought we made these shows for turn out to not be the people at all that are watching it. So, you know, when you make a World War II documentary, I think you're told, you'll imagine it's a sort of 35-year-old guy sits in a big chair and watches all these shows. Factual binging. And, and then what happened, and I think it maybe is through the colorization, is that Netflix discovered that, that actually this audience skew was really quite young for great events of World War II. They were getting sort of 18-year-olds, 18 to 22-year-olds or something really quite unexpected. And they were watching it again and again on repeat. So Netflix absolutely loved that because that's what they want. They want to get young people watching Netflix because they're their future. You know, you get someone watching Netflix now, they'll keep watching it as they become older and stick around. And so that really was a surprise to us. What it meant Netflix wanted the second time they got this series is that they wanted to make sure that we did not approach this like this was the same old hat. And, and we all know this bit. You know, when Nazi Germany sweeps the victory in, in May 1940, they humble two of the world's greatest allies, Britain and France. You know, stuff that I would frankly say, really? You know, this is like 101 of Second World War. But they want you to reframe and state it because there's a whole younger group of people now watching these that don't know anything about this. 
Netflix are absolutely furious with me because I threw in this line about Mussolini. And they said, you can't just say Mussolini. You've got to know who he is, what country he's from, what's going on with him, you know. And so that's quite difficult because you're using up a lot of time. You'd want to cram with all the things that I think are new and interesting, basically restating things that you think everybody already knows. That makes me wonder about something else that, that I've been thinking about as you were talking. So there seem to be two poles here. One is entertainment. Clearly, you, you said explicitly this is entertainment. But at the same time, research goes into this. You're talking to experts. You're an historian by training. And you're also saying, you know, depending on what kind of people you're making this for, there needs to be reliable information in there about you know, who are these people, what happened. So there is an element, I guess, of providing information of making a history program that gives people a sort of factual knowledge. Are you trying to tell people something about history at all? Or is it really all just entertainment? That's such a good question. And that is the tension at the heart of all of it. I would say that they are interwoven because it's real and it's happened and it was dramatic. It is therefore interesting. So the information in itself is interesting, right? So No, we're not out there to educate people. That's not our main goal. It's to entertain. But you can be entertained by being educated. So by discovering these true stories of things that actually happened, told in an engaging way, you are therefore entertained. It's called factual entertainment. The, the facts and the entertainment are hand in hand. I think the discipline is, how do I make the facts entertaining? So I do need to tell you what's happened, but I need it, it's not a chronology. I'm not here to go, and on May 40th, they did this. And then on that, because anyone could do that. It's like, how do I turn it into a story? But I have to make the story out of what happened. Nobody's going to pay us for making something that's a research companion or revising material for someone's GCSEs. And yes, I, I wonder if that is actually happening more and more, especially since the pandemic and lots of online learning at school and so on. You know, maybe that's actually behind the, the lower age demographic of the Netflix viewing figures that children, pupils, young people are turning to this kind of thing, actually, as one of the pillars, one or at least one of the sort of supplementary aspects of their of their broader education. So it might be that your role becomes increasingly important in the educational experience of younger generations. But no, I think you're right. I, I've got a friend who's a teacher, history teacher, and she said she showed her students without knowing I'd worked on it, the one about Hitler's rise and fall. So yeah, I think that does happen. Just following up on some of the points you've made about storytelling, entertainment, and so on, you, you said towards the start of the interview that World War II, you can get all sorts of documentaries out of World War II you can keep going on World War II I yeah. wonder if you could tell us a bit about which wars don't sell which wars don't get lots and lots of documentaries and why I mean until Peter Jackson made the World War One documentary you would have said World War One I know particularly American channels never commissioned World War One uh, nobody likes World War One I. I don't know why maybe for the obvious reasons it's stodgy it's unglamorous You hear these things along the way in your career. Like I heard someone said Cold War doesn't rate. I think Cold War's fascinating, but apparently nobody wants to watch shows about the Cold War, so they don't make them. Maybe because there wasn't much fighting or, or any. <laughs> It was cold, so that's a problem. And then after that, the list of wars you don't cover is as long as the number of wars there are in human history. It's really, really, really hard 
without massive budget to represent war on TV. And the reason that World War II keeps on coming up is because we filmed loads of it. And also it's called in America public domain, which is it's owned by the National Archives. So it has no licensing fees attached. You can get the footage, access to it. You can use it for free as much as you like. So obviously TV production companies and channels love this because it's free footage. Previous to that, they're just, you know, there isn't much footage out there. So then you get into this terrible thing where you've got no budget and you end up taking lots of general views of fields and adding slightly lame sound effects underneath of drums banging and men kind of going, you know, but I mean, I don't blame them. That's all they've got. And then maybe a slow pan across a still picture or an etching or something. So you'll have about eight blokes who you've maybe got from the local historical reenactment society along and you're trying to pretend it's a battlefield and you're trying to find various ways of shooting eight people. I did a thing that was Elizabeth I and it was her rallying the troops shortly before the Armada and she'd sort of gone down to the coast to see the men. And I had four people and this actress in in an Elizabeth I costume and it was just ridiculous to try and make that feel like she was addressing a whole army. And then the third way is loads of money, maybe CGI, and do it really properly. And that almost never happens apart from outside of movies. So in answer to your question, you know, you just avoid it. And the further you go back, the worse it gets. You're dealing with Anglo-Saxon period. You haven't even got paintings. You haven't really got drawings. You've got next to nothing. You've got some text, some lovely text, Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, something like that. But you haven't really got any imagery. It goes back to a point Nicholas made earlier that we talked about a bit with the editors of the Ancient Warfare magazine, that you're having to visualise, you're having to imagine, I mean, there's a huge amount of creative artwork that goes into that. And you, you just mentioned movies and CGI, and I suppose the risk of doing that in a documentary is that it just ends up looking a bit like Lord of the Rings with, you know, masses of troops coming together. Now, It's I have- also really expensive. It's just not even an avenue that's open to you. American Civil War... An American War of, of Independence are both okay because Americans love dressing up in costumes. There's huge numbers of societies. They take it very seriously and they love being on TV. But outside of those wars, no, I mean, they're, they're almost all to be avoided. <laughs> it's a mix of budget, logistics, source material, and then also maybe a preference for certain kinds of war. American Civil War, World War II is particularly interesting stories or wars that you can tell interesting stories about with goodies and baddies and drama yeah. and, and plot. Yeah, and that doesn't just affect how World War II and the American Civil War are represented. It actually affects our general exposure to war. So those trends in documentary making, those logistics are essentially kind of reinforcing certain habits of visualising war through relatively narrow lenses, I suppose. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and then there's this, it doesn't rate. Well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you then never make it, nobody's ever going to watch it. So how's it ever going to rate? So you start just only doing the same things over and over again. I mean, I've done this sort of what I call the holy trinity of TV shows. I've, I've done one on Titanic. I've done one on Jack the Ripper and I've done the Nazis. Those three subjects, if you make a show about those, people will watch it as a kind of rule of TV. So, you know, people keep on remaking shows about those three subjects. Yeah, there's loads of really interesting things that are not covered because they think people won't watch it or it's just really hard to do. History, almost more than any other subject, demands fresher ways to do visualisation because I think, like Alice was hinting at, I think it's such an impediment at the moment to being able to make shows about lots of interesting areas. 
films. I think I saw today advertised um, a new drama about British troops who served in Afghanistan and who were then accused of war crimes. Actually, it turned out they'd been falsely accused and the solicitor involved, the human rights lawyer, ended up being struck off the, the, the solicitor's register and so on. Um, so it's a true story. It's a historical story. It's a historical take on the war in Afghanistan, um, but very much played and produced as a as a drama with, yeah. you know, I think, fully acted out. I suppose that brings me on to a final question, which is my understanding of the very conflict in it, conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan is that until very recently, people have been quite wary of doing documentaries about them. There isn't a clear narrative arc for what's been going on in Afghanistan in many ways. Do you see that changing? Do you think that there is more appetite either amongst audiences or documentary makers to start treating Afghanistan and the Iraq conflict perhaps more boldly, more bravely in documentaries? Or is that not something that seems to be um, coming through very much at the moment? To me, not from a TV point of view, it still feels quite political. I would say it might suffer from some of the problems, I'm afraid, from an entertainment point of view that we've touched on, which is it doesn't really have a clear narrative. It doesn't really have any clear battles. Kind of like Afghanistan, we went there and it was a horrible grind and disaster. Sort of both local population and our troops both had a fairly miserable experience of it without anything seem to have been really achieved. I don't think it's going to lend itself to history documentaries when it no longer becomes political in 20 or 30 years time. That would be my instinct. I think it's interesting those questions of should we have been there at all? There's also this amazing new element, isn't there, of these what we call UGC, user generated content. So body cams, that's a whole new thing to play with. And that really makes it appealing from a TV point of view because that's really amazing stuff. But I would say, The Second World War has this great moral driving thing. It was the force of good to stop the baddies. So everybody's got a really clear agenda there. I think that answer pulls together lots of threads that have been going through this interview, this discussion, that certain kinds of war lend themselves to the documentary format in a way that others don't. You know, interestingly, on this podcast, we've recently interviewed a novelist whose novel is effectively based in Afghanistan it's about the the very contemporary experiences there and and it's something that clearly you know he was able to explore you know really interesting and quite deep ways in a novel with all sorts of word pictures and precisely not doing the kind of linear narrative that you need for documentary so his novel takes a completely different angle for each chapter each chapter is narrated by a different inanimate object and he said when he imagined the book he imagined that each chapter could be just you throw them up in the air and they could land and whichever way they landed would be however you could read the book and of course that doesn't lend itself to documentary making as you've described it so yeah I think your your instincts there are right that there are certain kinds of war that do lend themselves to war documentaries and and for now at least some that don't but it will be interesting to see if this body cam footage just does change that going forward and and other digital advances that you've mentioned yeah I mean I think it's complexity is what makes it interesting and political you know, this is how I would see it. If I'm giving you my potted version now, coming in on day one, there's very little going from A to B. We kind of turned up, went there, the Taliban pretended to have disappeared, but actually melted into the local population. And then it was this kind of grim guerrilla thing. So yeah, I would go very much with the Peter Jackson First World War thing is I think it's the individual soldiers' experiences that are interesting in that war. I mean, there was an amazing series on BBC not that long ago, which I think you may have seen called Once Upon a Time in Iraq. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if I could have made one thing, it would be that. Because as a TV maker, the skill that went into that, he had lots of individual people, eyewitness testimonies, amazing individual stories. And firstly, he let them breathe and he let their characters come through. And they had those great moments where you kind of suddenly see all the lights around them and you just see them as very much real people. And it isn't this slightly sort of sterile, what we call talking heads. Um, But secondly, the skill to manoeuvre those eyewitness stories into something that fitted within a superstructure that felt like chapters that took you on a journey that took you through the arc of kicking out Saddam Hussein, not being prepared for what followed after it. Then this period where we were sort of there, but starting to become almost the enemy of the people we were meant to have liberated. You know, he managed to get that whole political, strategic, tactical arc in, while at the same time sort of seeing it through the eyes of these people who are ordinary Iraqis who lived there. And that is the greatest skill. You know, there was a plot, but there was intimacy. And that's why I thought that series was absolutely incredible. So I suppose what you're saying there is that one of the merits of trying hard with the walls that don't sell is that they do show us some very different angles of war that aren't focused on the high stakes action that aren't focused on the kind of political strategy but just focused on the everyday the ordinary the impact that are all part of the bigger story of war but which we see perhaps far too little of on the tv screen yeah, I think there's a danger that World War II can glamorise the war. And certainly we've got this jingoistic, awful national narrative going on that for some reason we've decided that we were just super brilliant and won it all on our own. It's all not true, you know. And so World War One has got all that stuff going on. And I think what's good about shows like that is that no one should be under any illusion that war is awful and to be avoided at all costs. And the heroic parts of war are the furthest things from your mind when you're in it. It's about survival and misery. And, you know, I think these more modern wars remind us that that's still going on and we're still making those mistakes, you know. Yeah, so it doesn't make for entertaining TV, but it's really important to convey somehow. Sam, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really fascinating hearing about your experiences of making war documentaries, hearing about the industry more generally and the habits of visualising war in the industry, which spill out into our wider cultural habits of visualising certain wars and war more generally through those particular wars. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. It's been really interesting. Yes, uh, Sam, a big thank you also from me. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us again. And we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sam Taplin as much as we have. And do keep tuning in to the Visualizing War podcast because we have another great guest lined up for next week, Dr. Emily Mayhew, a historian of medicine at Imperial College London. And she will be talking to us about some of her research into the treatment and visibility of wounded soldiers from World War I to the present, in particular about how the wider public has learned to read war wounds in very particular ways and to draw conclusions about war itself from them. So do join us for what promises to be another interesting episode. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young and the show was mixed by Sophia Gertin. Thank you for listening.